Welcome back to Scriptures with Momentary. I'm the mom, Linda Weiniger, and today we are at Hobie's house, or aka Grandma's house, because Grandma is going to pick up Uncle Jonathan. So, taking this opportunity to have a little quiet moment, because you gotta take those opportunities. Okay, except I'm trying to find like a good spot for myself to sit. Okay, we're going to be reading John 2 through 4. Okay, here we go. So, some review beforehand, or whatever you want to call it. It says, as Jesus began his ministry, he certainly would have had many experiences that were never recorded. But the stories in these chapters were preserved for us. In these chapters, we will learn about Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, Jesus cleansing the temple, Nicodemus coming to Jesus, and learning about baptism and the woman at the well. As you study these stories, consider why they were included and what eternal truths you can learn from them. So um, they're also going to mention the Sanhedrin. And uh, Redhead Hostess explains a little bit of what that is, that this week... You learn about a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, so what is the Sanhedrin? So it was the highest Jewish court in the land. It had 71 members and it had great power but did not have the authority to execute Jesus. Therefore, they took Jesus to the Roman officers with false charges. This led to his crucifixion. That's very sad. Um, and then what was Samaria? When Jesus left Jerusalem to travel to Galilee, he traveled through Samaria it is where it is there where he met the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. Samaria had been the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. When the northern kingdom had been captured by Assyria, foreigners inhabited the land and in, intermarried with some Israelites who were left behind. Therefore, in the days of Jesus, it had a mixed population and the religion had been corrupted. The Jews considered the Samaritans a despicable people, and both populations hated each other. Well, that's the worst, huh? So if you want to picture it in your mind, let's pretend that Galilee is, uh, maybe let's pretend that Galilee is, I don't want to, Okay, I'm not going to be calling names. This is not like to insult people. I'm just trying to help you understand like where in like what the range was. So Galilee was up north and then we had Nazareth and then we had Samaria at the bottom or in the middle, I should say. And then below that was Jerusalem and then below that is Bethlehem. So if we were going to help you see what that is we could say that like Bethlehem and Jerusalem was like Provo area and then Samaria could be like Orem and then Galilee could be like Pleasant Grove but then there's Linden right there before you get to Pleasant Grove right so as we're going up that way so anyway um so imagine everybody being uh, mean to people from Orem. That'd be crazy, right? <laughs> Anyways, okay. Um, here we go. John 2, 17. So, and, or 2, 1 to 17. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana. Okay, and this little side note says a neighboring village to Nazareth, which was like four miles away. 
of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. So who's the mother of Jesus? Mary, right? And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Um, and, and it included like a huge feast too, right? Um, cause it was like a big wedding. And then that just means that like these people were invited. So Jesus was invited and so were his disciples. Okay, verse 3, And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. I love this because it's like a different version of like hear him, you know. And this is also coming from a parent of Jesus Christ. So what does Heavenly Father say that we need to do um, when he was introducing or when he was saying that at the baptism that he was well pleased and that this is his beloved son, hear him, right? And so Heavenly Father's instruction about Jesus Christ and what we can do about what he says or what... um like his example is like, hear him, right? But then here we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, giving us instruction. I mean, you know, sure, she was talking to the people there, but this could be instruction that we could say like, this is from Jesus's earthly mother. And it's like, whatever he saith unto you, do it. Like, I feel like Nike, like took their, took her, um, saying, and now they're super popular because, you know, it's in the scriptures. <laughs> um, okay. She didn't say just do it, but you know, it's do it. And I think, I think that's important for us to realize that, you know, um, it's in here and preserved in the scriptures for us for a reason. I think, I think the people who, you know, John, thought it was really important for us to remember that and like um for their wedding feast like it was wine was like a staple at a wedding feast and it would have been like super embarrassing if the host or whoever was running the wedding um runs out because it makes it you know look like you're a bad host and then like the people that are getting married it's like are insulted or feel bad that you know they didn't that they didn't get what they needed you know um because like weddings are like supposed to be like the ultimate party right I mean they technically are here too but uh so anyway you don't want to run out of food or drinks um but here if you run out of food or drinks, it's probably fine. It's like you didn't expect so many people to come, right? But um, back then, it was like not okay. So um, yeah, like the word I'm looking for is dishonor um, and would be like remembered for a really long time, which <laughs> sounds like Hispanic people, you know? Like we remember all the things. And so um, especially when it's a, a bad thing. So I don't I mean that's just like what their culture was, right? I'm not saying that when people run out of food or wine or drinks or whatever, that we should remember that and hold it over their heads. <laughs> we definitely need to be more forgiving than that. But back then, that's just how the custom was. Um, 
And so for some, for some reason, Mary became aware of the situation. So she told her son because, you know, she knows who he is and what he's capable of. And so, of course, makes sense, right? Um, and then this is what Elder Talmadge said about, um, Elder James E. Talmadge said about this. It says, the manner in which she told him of the insufficiency of wine probably suggested an imitation that he use his more than human power and by such means supply the need it was not her function to direct or even to suggest the exercise of the power inherent in him as the son of god what have i to do with thee he asked and added mine hour is not yet come so here we find no disclaimer of the ability to do what she apparently wanted him to do but the plain implication that he would act only when the time was right for the purpose and that he, not she, must decide when that time had come. She understood his meaning in part at least and contended herself by instructing the servants to do whatsoever he directed. And I think that's, I, I just think that's awesome that his mom was like, yeah, just do whatever he says, right? And I, I bet that that was twofold, you know, because, yeah, Elder Talmadge said that, you know, she's not trying to tell him what to do, but she was, like, making a request. But at the same time, she also trusted in his problem-solving ability, right? And so even if he couldn't um, or, or chose not to use his more-than-human power, that he could figure it out. He could figure out how to help them, right? Because he must have been really resourceful as well. And not just, um, what's it called? Not just like be able to do all the miracles that he did, you know? So, so anyway, I think that's also uh, trust, like a mother's trust, right? Okay, and then let's see, verse 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Okay, so the six water pots were, like, for washing, especially when eating. But it wasn't, like, drinking stuff. Um, and then it says, Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and then fill them up to the brim. And they filled them up to the brim. So uh, two or three firkins apiece. So it could hold two or three firkins apiece, and there were six water pots, okay? So John John gives us more details about this situation. In the place there were six water pots that were used after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. So these were not for wine, but for water that was used for cleansing, particularly before eating. These were large stone vessels that probably would have held up to 108 to 162 gallons of water. Dude, these people were strong. They could pick that up and fill up the water without like a hose. Like that's how I would have done it, right? There's no way. Um, so these water pots were not yet full of water, and Jesus then instructed the servants to fill the water pots with water. The servants obeyed, and their diligence here will add to the miracle. If they would have questioned Jesus' instruction and not wanted to go to this extra work on top of all that they were doing for the wedding feast, they could have filled them half full. But they chose to fill them to the brim, the greatest among, amount possible. And I think that's also significant, right? Because these were just like regular washing pots. They're like, you 
we're going to fill these up to the brim, right? Like, that's crazy. Also, they're really heavy, so we're going to go through tons of work to fill these up. Dude, like, I can't hold a five-gallon jug. We just had a Pinewood Derby, and by the way, that was so fun, and Faust took third place in his class. He was excited about that, but the most important part was that he was able to hang out with his grandpa and dad. And yeah, that was super fun for him. And then bonus was that Flora was able to go and hang out with them in, um, hang out with grandma juice up there in Centerville. And they were able to, everybody was able to have a lot of fun. And anyway, that was a fun day for them. And that meant that I was able to get some stuff done. Um, but anyways, like I think, um, holding, like, so we just had the Pinewood Derby and we put the water in these like five gallon jugs and I, I gave it to my friend to fill up with lemonade and with water. And it was hilarious because I can't, I can't lift one of those jugs by myself and it's just five gallons. So imagine 108 to, to 162 gallons of water. Like that would have been so much, uh, super heavy. Um, and they would have had like, I mean, I feel like You'd have to have three people carrying that, but also, like, how do you carry one of those water jugs? Okay, now I'm going to read verse 8, and it looks like the miracle is going to happen between verse 7 and 8, okay? Because this is what 8 says. It says, And he saith unto them, Draw out, draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And when the ruler, which was the man who presides over the feast, of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. So this is the beginning of this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Okay, so this, so like I said, the miracle happened between verses seven and eight. And, um, but like John doesn't actually specify like what the miracle was, but it, like just that it happened. And then Christ instructed the servants to draw out water from the water pots and take it to the governor of the feast. And then the governor was the person who had uh, been presiding over the feast. And it was he who was ultimately in charge of the food and entertainment. And then the governor tasted the drink, and, but he had no reason to believe that it had ever been water, right? So, um, in fact, he wondered why this had been saved until late into the feast when tradition was to serve the best wine first. So Christ indeed performed this miracle, but not in a manner, uh, not in a public manner. Only some knew what had happened and the wedding party seemed unaware of what had just occurred. And so President Gordon B. Hinckley, he says, he who had created the world and governed it as the great Jehovah understood the elements of earth and all the functions of life. Beginning at Cana, where he turned the water into wine, he went on to cause the lame to walk, the blind to see, and the dead to return to life. That was President Gordon B. Hinckley, April 17, or 1978. Well, not 1798. <laughs> 1978. Okay, and then verse 12 to 17. After this went 
After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and, the, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of the small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. This is like one of my favorite parts. And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. So I I love that because even Jesus gets angry, you know, and he can overthrow tables and um when people aren't doing what what they're supposed to be doing and respecting temple grounds, you know, he's able to use his his uh power to to show that he was angry about it. And anyway, there's like this little bitmoji that Clark and I like to use where like the little bitmoji like flips over the table and I'm like I'm just trying to be like Jesus (laughs) but anyways obviously we have to do that only with sacred things and not like be doing that all the time and you know obviously this is like one of the only times we even have recorded that Christ gets upset so you know he definitely knew how to control himself Um, Okay, and then here's some commentary. It says, Jesus then went to Jerusalem for the Passover. The temple was divided into different courts, and each court was considered holy. The court of the Gentiles was the outer court of the temple, and non-Jews were allowed in that area. Then, as you walked further into the temple, each new court became more holy and more selective on who could enter there. When Christ arrived in Jerusalem for Passover, a marketplace had been set up in the court of the Gentiles. The market itself was not improper. It was the location that was irreverent. As people arrived to Jerusalem, they needed to offer sacrifices unless they owned the animal for the sacrifice they were, they were to give. They, they would need to purchase the animals. So, I mean, that makes sense. If you're not like a sheep herder or a shepherd, you don't have an animal to give, maybe, or birds or whatever. That would have been me. I always would have had to bring some cash for the animals because we would not be giving up Frodo. Plus, he wasn't like the firstborn and he's got spots. So, you know, we're lucky. We <laughs> lucked out there. Um, while it's And then while these business exchanges were necessary, performing them on temple grounds was inappropriate, especially if they were overcharging. In addition, there was a temple tax that needed to be paid that could only be paid in the temple coin, which is why money changers thrived there. With various animals tied up around the temple, it would have been easy to locate materials to make a whip. Certainly, these sellers had booths or locations that were very advantageous to them, so getting them to leave would not be a small task. So Christ uses strength to dr- to drive them out, and it worked in verse 16. Christ could not drive out the dove's who were changed, so he especially he specifically asked for them to be removed. Okay, so righteously, or here we go. It says, righteously indignant at what he. Oh, and this is from James Elder James E. Talmadge. Also, it says, righteously indignant at what he beheld, zealous for the sanctity of his father's house, Jesus 
essayed to clear the place and pausing not for argument in words. He promptly applied physically, physical force, almost approaching violence. The one form of figurative language that those corrupt barters for, for pelf could best understand. Hastily improvising a whip of small cords, he laid about him on every side, liberating and driving out sheep, oxen, and human traffickers, upsetting the tables of the exchangers and pouring out their heterogeneous, heterogeneous accumulations of coin. Heterogeneous? Um, with tender regard for the imprisoned and helpless birds, he refrained from assaulting their cages. But to their owners, he said, take these things hence. And to all the greedy traitors, he thundered forth a command that made them quail. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. He, his disciples saw in the incident a realization of the psalmist's line, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Okay, then in John chapter 2 verses 18 to 25 it says then answered the jews and said unto him what sign showest thou unto us seeing that thou doest these things jesus answered and said unto them destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up then said the jews forty and six years was this temple in building and wilt thou rear it up in three days but he spake of the temple of his body when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Okay, so that just means like that they trusted him. And then, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that they that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man okay so some commentary on that so some jews approached jesus after his cleansing of the temple and wanted to know what authority he had to do such thing it is very likely that the jews were not asking him to show his authority were angered at what jesus had done his response was not about what he had just done in the temple, but what these Jews, or Jews like them, will do to him in the near future. These and other Jews had defiled a sacred space, and they were using the temple for gain. But this will not be all they this will not be all they do. In the coming days they will destroy this temple, and that temple is Christ. But just three days later, that temple will rise again. He will be resurrected. Clearly missing the meaning, the Jews were bewildered and reminded Christ that the temple took 46 years to build. So how could Jesus raise it in just three days? Then in verse 21, John pointed out that Christ was never talking about Herod's temple, but of himself. So in verse 22, John explained that this early on, many disciples did not understand everything Christ was teaching. However, when Jesus was resurrected the disciples remembered this moment and the meaning became clear to them what a good reminder that we might not always understand or comprehend prophecies or eternal truths but one day we will understand better and we will be glad that we believed before we fully understood oh i kind of like that because so many of us want to know everything 
before we believe. But there is a miracle that happens when we believe without knowing everything. I'm okay. Uh, John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came by Jesus by the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So it's clear he didn't understand that. And I guess it seems really natural for me to understand that. So I'm like, I don't even want, like, I just wonder, like, how he didn't understand. But everybody, you know, is different in their level of conversion and in their language and culture. And so you have to remember, like, he didn't know. Um. Okay. And then, but don't judge. Don't judge just because he didn't know. Okay. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Okay, and then some commentary. So, so um, Christ was in Jerusalem during the Passover, and his acts were noticed by a man and led various people to believe in him. One such man... Oh, sorry. His acts were noticed by many. <laughs> by many, not just one man. So one such man, though, was Nicodemus. He was not only a Pharisee, but had risen in rank to be termed a ruler of the Jews. So he was kind of, you know, he was he worked hard for his position. And this means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin is like the highest ranking um, Jewish leader, okay, before like taking people to like the Roman court and stuff. Okay, so Nicodemus could not ignore the miracles and acts of Jesus Christ, and he knew that one only could do such things if God were with him. But he came to Christ by night in order to keep it private and not cause a stir. That makes sense. Also, just a side note, you got to watch this in The Chosen. It was so hard to watch. Like, I was crying because... I think so many of us can relate to his situation, even though we're not like high ranking Jews, um, <clears throat> Jewish leaders. So he went by night in order to keep it private. And in verse two, it says Nicodemus referred to Jesus as rabbi. So but addressing Jesus by this title revealed Nicodemus's respect for Jesus already, since it was a Jewish title for a teacher, and it literally means my master. So Nicodemus then declared that he knew that Jesus was a teacher come from God. Jesus then began to immediately teach Nicodemus and taught him the basic gospel truth of baptism. But the belief among the Jews, or I guess not baptism, but, um, oh yes, of baptism, but then also of the spirit, right? And then, <clears throat> um, my battery's running out. 
So basic truth, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the belief among the Jews was that Gentiles needed a new birth by accepting Judaism. But the Jews themselves were of Abraham and therefore in need, in no need of any rebirth. But Christ, Christ's words included everyone. So Nicodemus did not understand the, symb the symbolism of being born again and instead responded, how can a man be born again, uh, be born when he is old? And Jesus responded by explaining that a man must experience a new birth of water and spirit. One must be born of the spirit to enter the kingdom of God. And not only those who have truly been born of the spirit can know what that means. So just as you can hear the wind and know it is there, you don't know where it came from or where it is going. You just see its effects. So it is with spiritual matters such as being born again. With all of Nicodemus' status, education, and position, he cannot know what being born again means unless he has experienced it. Okay, so it says, the, uh, oh, verse 8 is just like kind of giving an example. The wind bloweth where it is, where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it com cometh, and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? And verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we, that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. And ye, and ye receive not our witness. If I had told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? So he was just trying to say, like, how can he tell him more if he doesn't understand the basic stuff that he's telling him? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, <sighs> even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So in verse or from verses 9 to 13, Nicodemus still does not understand. And Jesus then asks how Nicodemus could be a master of Israel and not know these things. Should not the leaders over Israel know this for themselves? Should not they understand and be teaching how to enter the kingdom of God? So Jesus then explains that he is speaking of things that he knows of for certain. And those in Israel are not receiving his words. How much more Jesus could have told Nicodemus and other Jews? How much more knowledge and mysteries could he have bestowed upon them? How much more of heavenly things he could have explained? How much more he knows that he cannot say to them for if they cannot grasp the first ordinance required, how can he tell them more? That makes sense. But that's like what we're all about right it's like no 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 you got to tell me the secrets first right like get to the get to the exciting part um although i do think conversion because that's what christ was talking about i think conversion is the exciting part not all the things that we do after we're converted those are exciting too but those don't matter because the conversion is what matters Whew. okay Let's see where does okay i guess i can read to 36 <laughs> 
but it's getting close to getting um to to time. So we're going to go from verse 14 to 17 and then we'll read this quote and then we'll be done for now. Okay. Um and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. And whatsoever believeth in him shouldn't Oh, just kidding. And whosoever that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Isn't that interesting? I uh, I think, I'm pretty sure Dad and I were able to sing in the word choir, and this was one of the songs that they um, had us sing. Um, I don't want to sing it right now, but it's... I should sing it. Um... Let me see if I could remember the sounds of it. Okay, I remember this one. Should not perish, should not perish. Like, I remember that part where it was kind of like a, I don't know, like a little chorus thing. But anyway, it was fun. And so I think it's fun that I learned that in song and there's many ways we can memorize scripture, but I think it's cool to be in the word choir and like have memorized that song. Um, okay. And then it says that Jesus then foretold of his death and mentioned the story of Moses raising the serpent serpent in the wilderness, which was a story that every Jew knew. This was a prototype of him, just like Moses raised the serpent to save Israel from the plague of the fiery serpents. God gave the world his only begotten son so that all those who believed in him will not perish, but so that they could have eternal life. And Second Nephi 9 teaches this doctrine beautifully. Um, in that chapter, Jacob teaches why we need a savior and what would happen to us without one. So this is how much God loved the world. So Elder Bruce R. McConkie says, this is perhaps the most famous and powerful single verse of scripture ever uttered. It summarizes the whole plan of salvation, tying together the father, the son, his atoning sacrifice, that belief in him, which presupposes righteous works and ultimate eternal exaltation for the faithful. And then President Dallin H. Oaks says this. There is no greater evidence of the infinite power and perfection of God's love than is declared by the Apostle John in John 3.16. Think how it must have grieved our Heavenly Father to send his Son to endure incomprehensible suffering for our sins. That is the greatest evidence of his love for each of us. End quote. So that was in October 2009 General Conference from President Dallin H. Oaks. Okay, so we're going to end right there because I'm going to go home now because Grandma just got back. Okay, we are now reading uh, John chapter 3, verse 18. So it says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So it's like we bring up we bring upon ourselves our own sentence or our own consequences of destruction, right? Like it's our own fault. But he gives us that freedom of choice. Okay, verse 19 says, And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world. And 
men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so people chose darkness over Christ. And, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that like, we always choose darkness rather than light. But I think that we could definitely see in our own lives, like how much, where do I choose darkness rather than light? And is the darkness that I'm choosing being disguised as light? You know, um, I always remember this quote there, maybe it's like a saying, but it's like, if you're too busy to read your scriptures or say a prayer, then you're not doing what the Lord intended for you to do. <laughs> like, and I think that's so right, you know, like, and you might think, well, I'm doing all these good things. I'm spreading light and I'm serving. But if you don't even have time to pray or to read your scriptures, to connect with Christ, if you don't have time to connect with Christ, you are in the dark. Like, you, you're going to be in the dark for uh, however long you choose to do that. And sometimes we choose darkness by accident because it's disguised as light, right? So, um, I mean, I, I think there are people who actually choose darkness, <laughs> but they're also being tricked, right? Um, we're all children of God and he wants all of us back. And so our choices bring us closer to closer to Christ or away from Christ. Okay, um, verse 20. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So you can hide evil deeds in the darkness, and that's why some people um, have so many secrets, right? I hate secrets and lies. It's like, let's just tell everybody all the stuff, and then that way nobody can use it against us. That's like one of my favorite scriptures. Um, is to is it it's not a favorite scripture it's just a favorite thing that i believe like if you don't have anything to hide satan can't use it against you and if you tell people what's up it's okay satan can't use it against you either right okay so verse 21 but he that doeth truth ah cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Those with righteous works, okay, welcome the light. Um, and even sometimes it's embarrassing to tell people what's up in our lives because we don't want people to know the bad things that we chose to do, but, it's, but that's also like part of being human, right? Like you're gonna fail, you're not gonna be perfect all the time. We had a little primary child yesterday giving our closing prayer. And he said, bless us to not make any mistakes. <laughs> and I'm like thinking about that, you know, and I was like, yeah, we don't want to make mistakes, but we're gonna, okay. Bless us so that we don't make mistakes, but we're gonna. So be there when we, when we fail and when we fall, right. Be there for us when we fall. And, um, I think it's that, that, that prayer that, uh, I think it was Alma, the younger maid, 
that he wanted to um, so badly not make any mistakes ever again, right? And so he's like, um, make it so that I don't want to do evil. I can't remember. I'm the worst at quoting you guys. <laughs> but I'm going to try. I'm going to continue to try. So until I get it right, right? Um, maybe one day I'll be really great at the quotes. Okay, and then um, verse 22 says, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. Okay, so Christ and his disciples continued to preach and to baptize people. Uh, and it says that sending Jesus into the world was an act of love. However, we bring our own sentence upon ourselves by not believing in him, by not partaking of his saving ordinances, and by not letting his gospel refine us and allowing the Holy Ghost to change our very natures. Yeah, the nature. Like we're a new creature. When we went to... Um, I got to go to see the chosen um, episode or season three, episodes seven and eight. And this was the season finale. And I got to go to the theater with Renee and Amy, some great friends. And it was amazing. I got out of there and I was like, I'm a new person. And Sister Wilson was like, new creature in Christ. And I was like, yes. And um, it's amazing how, you know, uh, dad and I were talking about anything that brings you closer to Christ is doctrine. <laughs> because the doctrine of Christ is repentance. And so anything that leads someone to want to repent or to want to be closer to Christ is doctrine. And sometimes we get caught up on all the little things, you know, um, there's no, I mean, some people get fancy with like the steps of repentance and it's cute because you can make like a poster with like the repentance spelling out or repent spelling out the steps or whatever. And those are just ideas and frameworks that people have come up with to make things more catchy or easier to go through a system, but, but really repentance just means you want to be closer to Christ and it doesn't have to include all those fancy things. And, and because once we want, once we have a desire to be closer to Christ, to live closer um, to him, to seek him out daily, when we live close like that, then we're not going to have those desires. Our, our natures are going to change and we're going to desire to do and be different. And that is what repentance is. And that is the doctrine of Christ, right? And so we get caught up in all the little things. And we just had um, a missionary come home in our ward. His name is Austin Olson. Olson sorry. And he just gave a talk. And it was so powerful. But he didn't really tell us that there's specific things you know, steps, like 10 steps to do this, you know. Um, but he said, like, the best thing to do is to serve God. You know, the best thing that we can do is to serve him. And I was like, I love that. That's so simple. You know, I feel like I could, I could do that, you know. 
I'm not a missionary the way he was, but I feel like I could, I could serve God. That's, that's how we can change. Sure. You know? Um, and of course I love that in the crush framework, which again, it's just a framework. It's just ideas of steps you can take to get closer to Christ, to achieve healing faster, to accelerate your healing, you know, things that I discovered would be better that the Lord has helped me find for my life. And that works for me. Right. And, but the S is to practice serving those that are closest to you. And the H is to go out and serve everybody else that you don't know that might take a little bit more courage to go and serve other people around you. So anyways, um, so here we go. Then Nicodemus is now a pivotal moment at a pivotal moment in his life. He can accept or reject the fullness of Jesus's message. If he accepts it, then his life will change in, an, in every way. He will most likely be cast out of the Sanhedrin, lose his position amongst the Jews in Jerusalem. But if he accepts him and forsakes all, he will become a disciple of Jesus Christ and therefore invite all of the eternal blessings that the gospel brings. So this, um, this scripture or this story of Nicodemus is so hard to, to watch actually to witness um, when you watch it in the chosen season I can't remember what season you'll have to look it up and they all blend in and um this is like there's a time and the way that they depicted it it was so perfect there was a time where Jesus was gathering all his disciples and bringing everybody together because then they were going to leave and it was everybody's kind of a little bit looking like intimidated and like they're uncomfortable being together and it makes sense because you know you don't want I mean, anytime we gather to Christ, it makes us feel uncomfortable because we're with people that maybe we don't know. And so it makes us feel a little inadequate, right? Because we think maybe other people are more deserving or like they're just better than us because they look better, they dress better, they look, they, they have better careers, they have, you know, whatever. And so everybody was there and you could kind of feel the awkwardness about it a little bit. But then you see Nicodemus coming around the corner like he was about to go join him but then he stays at the corner and and you hear Jesus saying like well we're just waiting for a few more people you know and then you see Nicodemus around the corner and he's like crying because he knows that his whole soul wants to be there but that he is having an internal struggle and I think that we can all relate to that. And it's so powerful because there's certain things we don't want to let go of before we come to Christ, right? And we think we have to let go of everything to come to him. But we don't. It's just a process. It's just a small thing. Step at a, one step at a time. We don't have to feel so overwhelmed line upon line. You know, and Nicodemus didn't know how things were going to work out. But if he followed Christ, right? He didn't know how things were going to be played out. He just assumed all the worst things were going to be played out. But of course, Satan's going to feed us the worst things and how things are going to be played out in our lives because he can do that. And if we play out the worst things in our lives, we don't make room for the best thing in our life. And that is 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if we just allow Christ to fill us with his light, that everything else will work out for our good. He promises us that, right? Seek you first, the kingdom of God and everything, all these things shall be added unto you. Um, okay, verse 23. And John also was baptizing uh, in Enon, near in near to Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Oh, man. But when he is, it's sad. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. Okay, so they were talking about baptism or like another purification ritual of the, of the Jews. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he's, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it is given him from heaven. So this is like your mission from God, right? This is John was talking about his mission from God. Ye yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. And verse 29, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. And he, Jesus, that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. So, saying like, few will receive his testimony. So this is John the Baptist, um, you know, talking. And then he that receiveth his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And let's remember, the wrath of God, there's just consequences, okay? And unlike us, we, we like give you a threat and stuff when you, you don't want to choose the right, right? But... God's not trying to threaten you. He's trying to outline the, the choices that you have. And he's trying to help you to choose the right because that will bring the most joy. And when you experience misery, it will seem like you are experiencing the wrath of God. It'll be like hell on earth when you are not being obedient. And so you have to decide for yourself, like, what do I want? Do I want joy? Do I want that in my life or do I want to experience all the bad consequences the natural consequences of your choices okay um let's see oh and by the way when you aren't obedient to the laws of God to his commandments or keeping those covenants that you've made Satan has a stronger hold on you and you end up doing more of what he wants you to do. And that's even worse. So it becomes not just hell on earth, but like really bad hell on earth. <laughs> um, okay. 
So it says, so some commentary here. Um, on verse 30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease, right? So the commentary is not verse 30, the goal of any disciple of Christ. A disciple's greatest desire is to turn people to the Savior. If we bring someone to Christ because of a special gift we possess, we haven't fully brought them to Christ until they look to him more than to us. Notice what Elder Neil A. Maxwell said, some have difficulty when particular tasks enter their sunset phase. John the Baptist is a model. However, saying of Jesus's growing flock, he must increase, but I must decrease. Mistake, mistakenly regard our present assignments as the only indicator of how much God loves us only adds to our reluctance to let go. Brothers and sisters, our individual worth is already divinely established as great. It does not fluctuate like the stock market. And I love that because sometimes we do feel like we need to get some kind of praise. Um, you know, I want to bring people to Christ because I'm not going to be here very long, right? I want to bring people to Christ and I don't need to be popular and I don't need to have all these things. And it's interesting because when I got called to be primary president, I'll tell you, I don't want to be president of anything. Like the Lord has to call me to those positions. The one time I actually chose to be president, I was, it was so hard. <laughs> I mean, of course the Lord helped me, but it was just hard and ridiculous. Anyway, so um, I didn't really love it as much as I love the callings that he has called me to. But anyway, so um, when I was called, um, I was getting training from one of the leaders and they actually meant well, but they said that I needed to do everything. <laughs> they said, you're going to need to make sure that you're doing the singing time and you're going to want to share your testimony through song with them. And you're going to want to uh, make sure that, you know, you conduct and I was just like, what? I was like, I don't want to do all those things, you know? And I was like, I'm not, I'm not in this to be famous and popular. Like, that is not my goal. I want to show the children that they are loved and that I love them. But not because I am amazing at doing everything. That, that seems so contrary to what I would think I was called to do. And so at the beginning, I felt really inadequate about the things that I was doing. And I was calling other people to come do singing time. In fact, I called two people to do singing time. And I was calling teachers and not just two teachers per class, three teachers per class. And we were calling, um, people to do different things and, and, and activities. And I was like, well, I could technically host all the activities, you know, you guys know how much I like parties. So I was like, I just, I could just rotate all the classes and invite everybody to my house every week, you know? And anyway, after calling, I'm so grateful for the presidency that I have because they are so wise. After calling so many people to do different things, I have slowly seen 
what a blessing it is in their lives to be able to serve the children. And let me tell you, the singing time thing has worked out marvelously, marvelously, magically, amazingly, super awesome because we called somebody who was not as active or um, that we could see as often um, and they did amazing and were able to come and be consistent and they tried and they and I believe their testimony of Jesus Christ increased because of the spirit that they could feel in primary as the children sang and we called somebody else for singing time and and they strove to just be awesome at music and leading music and researching and learning so many more things and finding extra special songs and, and just so many wonderful things. And I loved that, or I love that leader who was such an example to me, but I'm so glad that I didn't try to fit into her shoes because we have different shoes to fill right? My shoes are totally different. She gets to keep her shoes when she goes and she gets to take them with her. And it was, it was such an eye opener to see like, Hey, you know what? I didn't have to do everything because it wasn't my job. And my job is to bring people to Christ, not people to me. And so I strive to make sure that that is still the focus, right? Because it doesn't matter what I say, it only matters what people feel and the spirit can feel that um, and is the teacher here. So, so grateful for those eye-opening experiences and that, that prove that those people were necessary and were needed to bring children closer to Christ because, well, and I think the more people that serve children, the more they get to feel the love of the Savior as well. So anyways, our presidency is amazing and I'm so grateful for them. They don't let me do everything because they're so capable of helping and doing things. They get mad when I take stuff off their plate. It's hilarious and sad at the same time because I'm still learning. And so I am grateful for each one of my sisters. Okay. Um, Another quote from Elder Neil A. Max. Oh, no, just kidding. We just read that. Okay, a uh, quote from Elder Oscar A. Kirkham. Um, so he says, I want to refer to the baptism of Carl G. Mazur, one of the great spirits of our church, one of the great leaders of the Brigham Young University. Just after his baptism in Germany, he said these words, on coming out of the water, I lifted both my hands to heaven and said, Father, if what I have done just now is pleasing unto thee, give me a testimony. And whatsoever thou shouldest require of my hands, I shall do, even to the laying down of my life for this cause. End quote. Isn't that just awesome? And fun fact, there's a Carl G. Mazur Academy over next to our church building, um, next to our stake center. So there you go. You can, have, you can know that he fulfilled his and continues to fulfill his goals for bringing people closer to Christ through his school and through the children that attend there and stuff. So, and we have a friend who goes there. So anyways, um, and then one last quote from Elder James E. Talmadge, and then I gotta go because floor is awake. John the Baptist continued, oh, sorry, in more than one 
since was John great among all who were born of women. He had entered upon his work when sent of God to do so. He realized that his work had been in a measure superseded and he patiently awaited his release. In the meantime, coming in the ministry, directing souls to the master. End quote. So, so powerful. Okay. Well, um, that was chapter three. We're going to read chapter four in a minute. Okay. Here we go. We're going to read John chapter four. Okay. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Okay. So they were keeping a close eye on Christ. Though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go... Oh, hold on. So then, um, because the Pharisees were keeping a close eye on Jesus, like, and his disciples, um, and the success that they were having, they continued to learn of baptisms that were, like, occurring, like, on the DL. And they were more... There were more uh, than John the Baptist had done. So their concern would have been like growing because of that. Um, isn't that interesting? And then Jesus knowing this and knowing that it was not yet time to endure the wrath of the Sanhedrin, he departed to Galilee. So here we go. And he must needs go through Samaria. Samaritans and Jews were enemies. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of gro of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So this was like where Jacob lived with his 12 sons. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey sat thus on the well and it was about the sixth hour. Okay, so just there's like a there's always a chosen episode. It's so funny. I just love it so much. They're not 100% of course, but it's just so cool to see things um, the way they explained this was cool, too. Um, okay. Uh, now Jacob's well was there. Oh, I already read that. Okay, so there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep from whence then hast thou that living water art thou greater than our father jacob which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle jesus answered and said unto her whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again so it's the temporary Ooh, the temporary right but whosoever drinketh of the water that i shall give him shall never thirst but the water that i shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life so eternal thirst would be quenched right and the woman saith unto him sir give me this water that i thirst not neither come hither to draw she so now she's starting to desire it so jesus said unto her 
go, call thy husband and come hither. And so he begins to give it. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly, or I said it in a question, but it's not a question. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Okay, so um, a couple things. So... Like, <laughs> so many, so many things, so many things. Okay. So she was obviously talking to him about the water, but he was, um, talking about, um, the gospel and about Jesus Christ, right? And about himself. Um, but he continued to teach her. And at first she had like an attitude, which, I totally get, you know, at first when you encounter Jesus, you might have an attitude. Um, And then later, so this, so the woman was talking to him and calling him like being a Jew. But then later she starts saying, sir. And then towards the end here, she's calling him a prophet. So there's a, there's a stages in our discovery of Jesus Christ. And I think it's important for us to note that even though she did it in like, I don't know, 10 verses, that it might take us a lot longer to recognize than 10 verses, right? Because it could take us a long time since we don't get to sit with Jesus for a long time. And so sometimes... If we don't give him the time necessary to help us, um, for him to help us understand something, then it'll take longer. But if we give him the time, it might take less time. So, um, anyways, I really like the progression here and how she is able to discover, um, who he really is. And obviously he's not a prophet, he's Jesus Christ. And so like, then we, um, we get to see that later. Um, and Elder David A. Bednar, he says that the living water referred to in this episode is a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And as water is necessary to sustain physical life, so the Savior and his doctrines, principles, and ordinances are essential for eternal life. You and I need his living water daily and an, in ample supply to sustain our ongoing spiritual growth and development. And that is in a BYU speech, February 4th, 2007, A Reservoir of Living Water. And so the woman was convinced enough, and so she asked for water that he had. And she still didn't understand, but she expressed the desire. So he will continue to teach her until she understands. And I love the patience that he had with her um, because he's not like saying, I can't believe you don't get it, right? Um, I'm trying to tell you about living water. Who's me? Hello. Right? Like she was not getting that kind of attitude from Christ, but he was being really patient with her and talking with her, um, through this so that she could understand it more. And it kind of reminds me of the conversation he just had with Nicodemus and all right. 
because he was being patient with him too and not uh what's it called like rebuking him or anything like how come you don't get what I'm talking about rebirth you know I'm talking spiritually not physically here Nicodemus gosh you know like he doesn't have that kind of attitude with us in fact he has that patient loving attitude towards us and I know like right now Flora's trying to go down for bed and I am not having that patience that Christ um has because I'm like so done and I'm like you gotta just go to bed because I can't do anything else that's literally it (laughs) um okay and then some redheaded hostess commentary says that now that she's expressed desire he now begins to reveal who he is and he begins by showing that he knows her so go call thy husband right kind of kind of means that like he's trying to help her understand that he knows who she is um and then so now we know a little bit more about this woman and we can see why she might have been coming to the well at that time when she could avoid other women because her life was likely difficult and judgment may have been a part of her daily life but here was jesus talking to her and she was about to become an unexpected disciple And I think it's cool that he was talking to her because it's like, you know, they weren't supposed to talk to Samaritans, but, you know, obviously Christ talks to everybody. Um, And later, um, she concluded that he must be a prophet. So she began asking him a question that confused her or she was trying to change the subject. Um, Because she then starts talking about our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She said to him, the Samaritans and the Jews disagreed on this. Jews believed that the place to worship was in Jerusalem, while Samaritans believed that Moses had worshipped on Mount Gerizim. Therefore, they were justified worshipping on that mountain. Ooh, that was getting a little sleepy right there. Okay, so <laughs> new day, new scriptures. Here we go. John 4 verse 21 so jesus saith unto her woman believe me the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at jerusalem worship the father ye worship ye know not wait ye worship ye know not what we this is confusing (laughs) let's try one more time ye worship ye know not what we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Then this next verse is also found in the Joseph Smith translation, because there's a translation about it. It says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay, so one second, we're going to skip to this commentary here. It says, Jesus did not answer the exact questions she was asking, but instead was answering the questions she needed answered. (laughs) Uh, That just reminds me of like parenting. Okay, he was not there to engage in the argument about which mountain to worship on. 
he was there to turn her to him. Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. So he pointed to the future and how neither place will be where true worship takes place. Things were about to change. So the Samaritans had pieces of truth, but it was mixed with incorrect doctrines. At this point, the Jewish religion taught the truth. And in order to truly worship, you must know truth. So the greater question for this woman was not where to worship, but the truths needed in order to worship. So Joseph Smith said, said it this way, and notice his second reason. It says, quote, let us here observe that three things are necessary in order that any rational and intelligent being may exercise faith in God unto life and salvation. First, the idea that he actually exists. Second, a correct idea of his character, perfections and attributes. And thirdly, an actual knowledge that the course of life which he is pursuing is according to his will. For without an acquaintance with these three important facts, the faith of every rational being must be imperfect and unproductive. But with this understanding, it can become perfect and fruitful, abounding in righteousness unto the praise and glory of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's in Joseph Smith lectures on faith, the third lecture. Okay, and then like commentary on the 23 and 24. Jesus then explained that the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The time was coming and is now and now is that true worshipers will not be focused on the place they were worshiping, but that they will be worshiping in spirit and in truth. The temple in Jerusalem might be bursting with Jews, but if they were not worshiping in spirit and truth, what does it matter? If they weren't doing those three things that Joseph Smith outlined, what is the purpose? Note the JST in verse 24 says that it changes God is a spirit for unto such hath God promised his spirit and they who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, so then Elder Bruce Armour Conkey says about this, what marvels of mischief one mistranslated phrase has done. Jesus never said God is a spirit, but rather that God had promised his spirit unto those who worshiped him in spirit and in truth. Yet falsely supposing the Lord to be the author of this statement, the whole sectarian world has turned to it more than to any other single passage to find support for their false creeds. Oof, this is a Bruce Elder, Elder Bruce R. McConkie, Doctrinal New Testament Commentary, um, section one, page, or one, one colon 153. I don't know if that's usually like chapter and page or how that works, but anyways. Um, and I think that's so important for us to recognize that that the Lord is there for us and that if we don't take advantage of all that he has offered, 
then it is like he offered it for nothing, right? And so we need to remember that he's doing this for us and not for himself. Because if it was for himself, he would have just stayed in his comfort zone, right? Had, had he known. Also, it's like this little kid yesterday in class when I was volunteering for, um, to help in Faust's class for Valentine's Day activity. It was so much fun. I love volunteering every time there's a party um, because I, I love being with my children. But not just that, um, I love the kids, right? Kids are amazing, children are amazing, youth are amazing. And so anytime I can get to be with them is a great opportunity for me, right? So for example, I was, tell, I was talking to one of the kids and I was like, hey, you know, um, he, oh, he asked, sorry, he asked, so why are you here? There's literally like seven moms in the room. And I'm like, well, cause we love you. And he says, I doubt that. And I was like, you know, I had to think about it for a minute. Cause I'm like, why does he think we don't love him? And so I was like, of course we do. Of course we love you. I said, why would we be here? If we didn't love you, I'm like, sure, I love Faust the most out of all the children here because he's my child and I want to be with him the most. He's my favorite. However, I still love the rest of his class. And I said, because if I didn't, why would I go through all this trouble? I could have just stayed home and been doing other things that clearly I love to do, but also want to do other things. Okay. And obviously I felt like going to the Valentine's Day party was totally worth it, but it's just so crazy how, you know, Satan is even trying to convince super little kids that they are not loved. But then us as parents, when we're doing things for them, they don't think that the reason we do things is out of love. And it's just helping me think like how much I need to remember to express that love because it's something that is easily forgotten and is easily pushed to the side. But it, I was just, and then we were talking, to, I was talking to another mom and we were talking about how, of course we love them. Of course, you know, I could just, if I just loved only Faust, I could just get him a bracelet because we were, I was helping make, um, I brought all the supplies to make little name bracelets and it was so cute. They loved it. But like, I could have just made a bracelet for Faust at home. Faust, I'll set you up a station when you get home and that's what we'll do. Right. But instead we're like, Hey, let's have everybody make a bracelet because that's crazy so anyway i was just like of course we love you sure we don't love you like like as if you were our child because you know there's a reason that heavenly father gave you to your mama but i still love you like like a little brother like a little sister you know christ loves you so i love you 
right? Anyway, so I just thought it was so funny, crazy, and yet hurtful at the same time. Because I'm like, ah, we need to figure out how to help them, you know? Um, And then this also reminded me of, what was this reminding me of? Oh, it reminded me of that we can, that Sister Dalton taught that we can make any place a holy place. And maybe I told you before, but Sister Dalton was the one that was the young women's president, when uh, the general young women's president when I was young women's president. And so I really love her. Um, I feel like I, she gave me so much instruction when I needed it. And then, but she loved the temple. And of course I was taking the girls to the temple every Tuesday morning. And it was just like so awesome. But she was the one who started, um, what's it called? She's the one who started the having youth get their own temple recommends instead of having group temple recommends for the youth. And I think that's so cool that she initiated that, that she started that because, well, it was appropriate because she loves the temple, but then also, um, well, she, I should say she loves the Lord and worships in the temple a ton, right? Uh, anyway, so, and she said that we can make any place a holy place. And so, so that's why this phrase is so, um, interesting because the Lord's not talking about like, Hey, you know, he's saying like, it doesn't matter it, it, if you decide to go to a temple, but if you don't have the right heart, then it's like, as if you didn't really even go, like if you're not actually worshiping, then why did you go? So, um, okay. We're going to read verse 26. No, 25. Okay. So the woman saith unto him, I know that mess that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto you. Wait, <laughs> let me get this scripture right. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Like, how that woman must have felt to have been taught this whole time by the Savior, by the one she has been waiting for. It's just so powerful to me. how patient he was with her and how loving, you know? And then him telling her who he was and he he knew that she needed that. So sometimes we can find the Lord in our everyday places, in our, in the mundane things that we do every day. Right? She was just going to the well, although she was going at a different time than normal. 
because she was trying to, she was probably, okay, probably, because it didn't say, but probably trying to avoid the crowds that judged her. So, it's just awesome. The Lord is the best. Okay, verse 27. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with a woman, with the woman. They call her the woman because she's a Samaritan. Yet no man said, what seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? Right? Because you, can, you don't question Jesus, even though that's what he, they were all thinking. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Okay, so some more commentary just on <clears throat> on this here. It says, the woman then agreed that a better time was coming. So she knew that there was a better time coming, that the Lord was going to come. Right? And now she was ready to understand what Jesus meant by the living water he contained. Now they were at a place where the focus was on the Messiah and not a well of water or the location. Right, I that speak unto thee am he, he told her. It was at this point of teaching that Jesus' disciples came and having no clue of what was really happening, focusing on the fact that the Jews, Jew, that Jesus was talking to a Samaritan, the woman then left and shared with others what had happened and her witness then brought others to Christ. Oh, I love this. Also, you got to watch, there's a video, Jesus teaches a Samaritan woman from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So go look that one up. It's at churchofjesuschrist.org. And then, of course, there's the woman at the well um, from The Chosen. And you can find all these things on YouTube. You don't actually have to have the app or, or, the, or whatever. Um, there's certain scenes that they take and put it on YouTube to try to get people excited about The Chosen. So you can watch some of these scenes on there. Okay. Then they went out of the city and came unto him in the mean while his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye, not, that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? So he's using meat to teach them as he used water to teach her, Right? which I think is perfect that he talks about drink first and then meat, right? Um, Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. But okay, so just another pause. <laughs> I have too much commentary on these. That isn't it interesting that when we are in the work of the Lord, Okay, when we are doing his work and we're busy with that, like we don't even think about food. Like, I mean, I'll be honest. I sometimes don't think to eat when I'm out doing 
drop-offs when I'm out doing visits and stuff like that. Like it just doesn't, it's not something that I am searching for. Like for example, chocolate, I love chocolate. But when I'm doing what I need to be doing, I don't crave the chocolate. And that could be something more to do with the fact that I'm just addicted to chocolate. But I think it also has something to do with what the Lord is saying here, that um, he provides our meat. And so when we are in the service of our fellow being, we are serving God and he serves us, right? It's like a big circle. <laughs> um, and he says that he will be our living water and he will be our meat. Like we, hello, do we need food? You know, I guess. Um, and isn't it interesting how Satan uses food against us so much? Okay. Let's see. Here we go. Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do the will. Oh, I, I read that. Okay. But it was probably good to read it again. Okay. Say, so thir verse 35. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your ear, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. So everybody will have joy as they reap and will work together to serve others. And it's great because I think it's fantastic. Like when we were doing the Pinewood Derby and I was helping um, the primary presidency was helping everybody. I was like, this is amazing. I could do this all day, right? Like, <laughs> luckily we didn't need to because I'm sure we would have passed out eventually, but, but it was so, um, it was awesome. And we were, we did have much joy and rejoicing together because we could see some people there that didn't normally come to church and it was just so great to see them and be with them right and so it's just it's just awesome when we are able to work together and we can see the fruits of our labors together and we do rejoice okay and herein is that saying true one soweth and another reapeth i sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed not labor you bestowed no labor, other men labored, and you were, ye are entered into their laborers. Okay, so after she left, after the woman at the well left, the disciples provided Jesus, oh, hey, I just had a memory um, that I don't want to forget. And it was when I was teaching primary a long time ago, um, I remember, I think this was before we had kids, um, I do remember uh, one time having printed, um, these pictures, but I used Photoshop. This was back when I used Photoshop a ton and I took pictures of the children's faces. It's, and I super imposed them. I edited the picture of the woman at the well that the church has. And I put their face in that, in the place of the woman that they drew so that they could see themselves at the foot of the savior learning this and just so that you know because sometimes it's hard to actually picture ourselves even though we all we all talk about like picture yourself in the scriptures liking scriptures unto yourself 
you know, but it's still hard to remember. And so I took their picture and I put it on top of that picture and I gave it to everybody. And it was just like so cool of a reminder to make sure that they get, they make time to sit at the feet of the savior. Um, so it was really cool. Hello, miss. Do you want to walk? Oh, Flor wants to walk. Okay, one second. Let me finish reading this. Okay, so after she left, the disciples provided Jesus the food they had procured and told him to eat, just as he had with the woman. He will use their physical desires to teach of, a, of spiritual things. But instead of water, it is meat that he will use as an analogy. I have meat to eat that ye know not of. He still has so much more to teach these disciples. He has so much more knowledge that he has not yet shared with them. Like the woman, they fail to recognize the spiritual lesson and wonder among themselves if someone else had brought him food while they were gone. What would satisfy Jesus' great, greatest hunger? What is his deepest desire? To do the will of the Father and finish the work he sent him to do. They were like, likely near grain fields when Jesus said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. Christ used the fields as they, as yet another spiritual analogy. They must have been about four months from harvest time, but Jesus tells them to lift up their eyes. The fields are ready to harvest, not in four months, but now. Elder James E. Talmadge suggests that he was saying this, a crowd of a crowd of Samaritans who the woman had testified to were coming to the well. They are the harvest that is ready now. So this is what he says. A crowd of Samaritans appeared coming from the city, looking upon them and upon the grain fields nearby. Jesus continued, say not ye, there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. They, the import of the saying seems to be that while months would elapse before the wheat and the barley were ready for the sickle, the harvest of souls exemplified by the approaching crowd was even then ready. And that from what he had sown, his, the disciples might reap to their inestimable advantage since they would have wages for their hire and would gather the fruits of other labor than their own. So Jesus, the Christ, page 176. Okay, so in the fields, one farmer may sow, plant his seeds, but be unable to harvest, gather the grain that is grown. The saying, one soweth and another reapeth, is alluding to the disappointing fact that of life that sometimes we are not there to gather our reward. But, it, but in this sense, it is, a dis, it is not a disappointment. It is two laborers rejoicing and working together to bring to pass salvation for the greatest number possible. Just as these disciples are being sent to reap now, they are really entering into the labor and participating in the works of countless prophets and individuals who have come before them. And I love that because it's true when, like I've heard so many stories of missionaries who serve and they don't get to baptize those people but then later on those people get baptized like grandma she it took five missionaries is what she says um five different missionaries so the first one never saw 
the couldn't reap the reward of her baptism but the final one was able to right and so but nobody's mad that they didn't get to see it well maybe the first one's a little bit sad and that's fine to be a little bit sad that you couldn't see the complete conversion of somebody but but it's not completely wasted okay it might be a little bit sad but it's not wasted right but in the end they will rejoice right they like when do you when have you heard of a missionary that is mad that somebody that they taught at the beginning got baptized like nobody they're not gonna be mad <laughs> so anyway i think that's awesome and let's have little flora she's a good miss hi miss did you want to do some walking oh you got some numbs she has little ice cream cones that she wanted to play with yesterday when her friends were here. We had a little Galentine's party for Flora's. Was it so fun? Yeah. Nom, nom, nom. I'm getting ice cream while I walk. This is the best. Nom, nom, nom. Here you go, miss. Thank you. No, don't put it on your, don't put it on your mouth. It's not real numbs. <laughs> Especially not because those kids, oh man, did I tell you, they like to eat their, they like to pretend, but not pretend that it's ice cream. I'm like, don't put your mouth on it. No, I still haven't cleaned all those toys. Ah. Hurry, go get some vitamin C. No, 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 don't put it in there. That's Finn's bowl. Oh, boy. Anyways, that's what happens. Okay, so let's see. Where are we reading? Oh. So I think it's so fun to read all the different analogies and teachings that the Lord provided here in these, in the scriptures and that they were preserved for us. Something that I told sister shade earlier on, um, this week during, or, or actually during the Pinewood Derby, it was after we finished the Pinewood Derby, hold on Flora, not yet. After we finished the Pinewood Derby, she needed to talk to me cause she's currently a teacher. And she didn't talk to me about something. Anyway, we got to talking about Finn. And I was like, oh, I love teaching with my kids, you know, because it gives me an opportunity to be with them. And then I was like, except for, I mean, I love being with Finn whenever I'm in his class, but he was always being obnoxious with me. And she's like, oh, I love Finn. And I was like, oh, well, obviously I love Finn too, but maybe not as much in class <laughs> when I'm with him. But she actually said, and this was kind of cool. And Finn, you'll love this. She said that Finn was really good at linking analogies together. And that he could say different things or find ways to say something in a different way so that it would make sense to everybody else. And I was like, oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing that with me. And I said that it's true. Finn is really good at finding those uh, likening scriptures and the gospel to himself and finding those stories and ways to illustrate those stories in a different way to help others make sense of it. And Finn is really good at that. And so I was thinking that was awesome that she had mentioned that to me. And that that's something that she remembers. I mean, Finn is 14 and he wasn't in primary just last year. He was in primary like three years ago. And so 
the fact that she remembers him in that way is really awesome. And so that was a happy mom moment. So turning it into now, hopefully a happy Finn moment. Okay, um, I'm gonna let Flora walk. She really wants to walk. So I'll be right back. Okay, she did really good, did not fall. Perfect. Okay, so it says, and uh, verse, or John chapter four, verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So they believed her testimony. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. So Christ stayed with them for two whole days. And many were more, many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. So he passed by Nazareth because he was not welcome there. We remember what happened. So then in verse 45, he says, Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans, Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. So, um, well, let's see. Let's just read all the way to the end. Never mind. We're just going to read up to number 47. And so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went in unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Okay, so, so many things. Um, I love that the story of the Samaritan woman is that they didn't have, it says that they didn't have a testimony because she had a testimony. They had a testimony because they went and saw because of her. And then they had, they got their own testimony from Christ himself. And I think sometimes as disciples of Christ, we think that it is our job to do the whole conversion ourselves. Like, but the spirit is the teacher and Christ is the one who can convert them. It is not our job to be Christ. We're not their savior, right? It's just our job to bring them hither, to bring them to him. That's it. And so what can we do to bring them closer to Christ, to bring them? Uh, or what can we say that would make them curious? Like really, our job is just to make them curious enough so that they could go find out for themselves, right? So if you word it that way, it feels like a lot less pressure, right? Like I'm just thinking of it now. Like if our job is just to make somebody curious, that's a lot less pressure than to, you know, um, than to help somebody convert, you know, or help get somebody baptized or help um, people to come and see, right? It's just like, just get people to be curious for themselves about who Jesus Christ is, and then he can do the rest of the work, right? So anyway, I love that. 
I love that part that they included in there. That not it's in it's it's John four chapter or John chapter four verse forty two or forty one and forty two. Okay. Let me read it again just so that you guys know what I'm talking about. And many more believe because of his own word. Okay. Because of Christ's word, they believe and said unto the woman. So they went back to her. Now we believe not because of thy saying. Okay. For we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. So we were only curious because you said something. So we wanted to check it out ourselves. But now we know for ourselves. See what I'm saying? So there's a difference. So just remember that when, it, when you're out there trying to talk about Christ, you know, make sure that you're giving credit where credit is due, right? Let's make sure we're talking of Christ as much as possible so that people are not confused who we love and worship. And then they will get curious and they'll go and look for the, for him themselves. Uh, okay. All right. Oh, and by the way, this was really hard for Samaritans because they didn't like the juice. Remember that? So the fact that they even went on her words, she must've had a really convincing uh, and very curious testimony that, or very convincing testimony that made them so curious that they needed to check it out themselves, right? Okay, I'm not saying you have to make a big show, but maybe you have to share your real story, right? Maybe you have to share your real story with others in order to get the curiosity really flowing there for other people. You can't just say stuff that's like, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that she was real showy or that she showed off, okay? But she did say that he told her everything that she ever did, right? And so the Samaritans knew what she had done, right? Like, that's why she was avoiding the well. She's gotten those judgments. And the fact that he knew everything she had done and was still talking to her was a miracle in and of itself, right? And then to say that it was the Messiah talking to her, now you got it, you know, like now I'm curious. But she didn't lie about who she was. She didn't try to keep that secret, right? And she was owning her story and also testifying of the Messiah. And so that, I think that's what's key. Like we don't have to put on a big show. We don't have to invent things, okay? I'm not saying like you have to do that, go through a bunch of trouble. Like, just share your story and how Christ showed up in it. And that will make people curious enough. And it'll make the right people curious enough. You're not going to have the right flavor for everybody. Everybody has different taste buds, okay? And that's fine. You're not trying to make everybody curious. You're just trying to make the right people curious, okay? So a little less pressure for you. Okay, and then we're at 48. Then said Jesus unto him, except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was 
now going down, his servant met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Oh man. So this hasn't been depicted in the chosen yet. But I know who is representing the nobleman in the chosen. And you can see that he was one of the kinder noblemen, maybe. So anyways, um, I really can't wait for you to see the chosen. You just got to watch all of it and read your scriptures. <laughs> it's kind of cool. Um, I've read the Bible before. And never did I have people to put faces with. But, and I know that they're not the real people that were there, obviously. Because they're just actors. And I know that they're pretending. But it's just a it's just so powerful. If you've ever read a book and you watch the movie, maybe I already covered this, you know what I'm talking about. Whether it's a fake book or a real book, it's always cool to have the visual confirm the written word that you've experienced, right? But you have to experience that written word separately because you can't just base your testimony off of a movie. The movie is supposed to get, and the show is supposed to make you curious about the actual word of God in the scriptures, right? The movie is to help you get curious about Christ so that you'll come unto him. Okay. Um, some commentary. It says, Jesus responded by saying that the nobleman required signs and wonders. Otherwise... He would not believe. Signs and wonders have never been the great building blocks of faith, okay? You guys remember Laman and Lemuel got like a bazillion signs and still they suffered. They struggled to believe. And so the nobleman persisting on behalf of his son asked again. And Jesus simply told the man to go on his way for his son will live. Jesus did not go to the boy, but he would still live. And the man believed. And returned home. On his way home, his servant met him and reported that his son still lived. And then um, he confirmed that it was at the same time that that happened, right? So Elder Bruce R. McConkie says this, Having heard the gospel taught and believing that the teacher could work miracles, the father came to Jesus. Came, Come down to Capernaum and heal my son, he pleaded. By declining to go down as though his personal presence was required for a miracle, Jesus tested the faith of the father, and finding that it remained unshaken, he healed the child at a word. The father without more, and before word came from his servant, servants, knew that the healing power had operated and that his son lived. When this was confirmed a day later, John says, himself believed and his whole house. We have seen thus the miracle of healing a disease-ridden body 
and the healing of a truth-seeking soul. We have seen a physical cure that raised a boy from the doors of death and a spiritual cure that enabled a man to shake off the disease of unbelief that leads to spiritual death. Truly, the master healer uses his power in a perfect way for the blessing and benefit of his mortal brethren. And this is from the mortal Messiah 2.11. Now, I think, I think maybe he did this for all of us to show that he doesn't need to be present to provide the miracles that we need for him, from him, I mean. It just goes to show you that he doesn't have to be here with us. It's, but sometimes that's what we think. Like, oh, if only he could be here, everything would be better, you know? while I agree, I can take comfort in knowing that he doesn't have to be present to provide the miracles that I need in my life. I'm so glad I read this to the end. I was going to just say, like, go read chapter four in John yourselves. I'm so grateful that I took the time to read it, even though this is now a two hour long podcast. Woo episode. I have to try and shorten that stuff up. Remember we tried that? It was good, but then it was not good. Anyways, I love you. Keep keep walking. Keep going. Life is hard, but with Christ, all things are possible because he is our strength. Bye.